course, one can never be sure where danger lurks. They tell me a dreadful crime was committed right in this building, but I don't think we should stay long. Something unpleasant is about to happen. Good evening. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. We are rolling along merrily, but unlike the recent Richard Linkletter news, our merry rolling won't conclude after 20 years of filmmaking, production. Uh, he, makes, he takes a lot of commitment into his films, guys. Watch Boyhood. Uh, if, you, uh, if our take on Hitchcock lasts that long, by the way, uh, then we've truly gone mad. But as Norman Bates says, we all go a little mad sometimes, so I guess you never truly know how far a thing can go. Uh, before we begin, I would like to thank our previous guest, Quinn Resterman, um, who I had the privilege with chatting about The, the Lady Vanishes. It was a very n nice time talking about the early British Gamo period, uh, and it's something we need to work hard at doing more of on the show here. Uh, hopefully we can talk stuff like The Man Who Knew Too Much and The 39 Steps, those earlier films that... Uh, brought us to the attention of Hitchcock in the first place. And of course, a million thanks to Brad Haig for his hard work uploading our show onto the Real Nerds feed and for putting up with my Hitchcock insanity. Uh, incidentally, as of this recording, Brad has just seen his first Hitchcock film this week, which was none other than North by Northwest. Um, and he said it was a fine picture. Just fine. Here's hoping that we get him to see more of Hitchcock's vast body of work. Uh, I mean, I think he'll like Psycho. I think he'll like The Birds. Um, but uh, now on to today's program. In the course of this series, we have discussed Hitchcock in many aspects, whether it's the stars he worked with, his meticulous details, or the innovations he brought to the, brought to the industry and the way it works today. One angle that Hitchcock worked, uh, worked the best in through all, through all of his oeuvre uh, would be elevating what some would call lowbrow subjects. Uh, this label may not be as strictly applicable today, but during his career, Hitchcock delved into subjects that were lurid and detested by what purveyors of good taste at the time would have seen as trash. Uh, yet, from the picture, um, yet from the picture he considers to be his first true picture, all the way down to his penultimate work, Hitchcock has found a way to innovate and deepen many aspects of the seedy and depraved. It is safe to say without him tackling these subjects, a lot of films that we hold dear today would not be as well-crafted and well-constructed. Uh, and four particular films in Hitchcock's career stand as marker points for his progress in this particular subject. Here to discuss them with me today is a fine gentleman who has proven his love of cinema in stride. He is the curator of Mile High Cinema, hosts Friday Night Weird at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder, Colorado. He's the curator of the Crested Butte Film Festival, and he, was, he is the host of the upcoming podcast History of You and Five Films. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jack Hanley. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. I, I am very excited that we've finally gotten you here. Um, uh, you, you, you prove time and again your commitment to film, whether it's through the Mile High Cinema articles that you repost, uh, whether it's gathering all the critics together to t bring out their lists and 
share their love of film because there's there's a there's there's an abundance of cinema knowledge to be had and uh sometimes i think with the current range of the internet it's very tough to have uh thorough discussion i think it sometimes comes down to bullet points but you have encouraged deeper talk um whether like the subjects uh are of uh, a controversial nature or just a simple nature um I know you and I have had discussions about Tarantino that have proved most interesting. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, and believe me, like there, there are, there are angles that I never um, uh, uh, would have figured when it comes to that subject. Um, my favorite discussion we've had is about Brightburn. Um, and uh, I remember you texting me going like, how was it? <laughs> I was just like, well, <laughs> where do we begin? <laughs> I, 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 I was like, I, I mean, my review of Brightburn still stands where I'm just like, Wish they could have had 30 more minutes and did more stuff, but it's pretty great. <laughs> I am so with you, and I think we stand somewhat um, off in the minority on that. Yeah, uh... I, I think it's hard for people to look at it for what it is because it is, it's a quick-moving picture that, like, definitely it's, uh, it's trying to tackle a lot, and it's also a film that I think is very hard to pitch in a, in a studio room and, you know, then say, okay, let's go and make this. Oh, well, it needs to be efficient enough to, you know, be a programmer more than anything else but certainly but despite its sufficiency dealt with <laughs> themes and motifs that exactly far it's, exceeded what it should have been for a film of it, that caliber so I'm, i stand by as a fan exactly no it's it's one of those films that definitely has uh it, it has more depth than it should which mm -hmm. not unlike the subjects we're going to talk about today you know like it's very interesting how far we've come where you can take subjects such as these or even subjects that you're not even like strictly paying attention to in the immediacy of the pitch of the story and yet we're grasping and it it's a good grasp it's not grasping at straws it's like a good firm grip on the subject um uh so we uh connected through mile high cinema and you know we've known each other prior to that um but when i pitched the hitchcock thing you were the first one i thought of because of the fact that your level of discussion is uh I think superb in the regards of just how you account for certain things. And when I gave you the questionnaire and you gave it back, you, you, you knew exactly what angles to cover. And, um, and we, we kind of came to what we're going to talk about today because of marker points. And, um, but I want to know as a young man or as a older man, cause like not everybody gets Hitchcock right away mm. in their lives. How do you come to Hitchcock? Um, what's the impetus for you approaching him? Is it just a love of film or is it just like happenstance? Certainly. And I know from listening to your podcast that I'm going to be one of those deviation points from the birds. It seems a lot of people <laughs> discovered Hitchcock through that. Well, when you hear about birds attacking people, I think it's right? very easy it's for a five-year-old to go, that, I so want that. So simple to get into that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but mine actually begins um, as a child as well, although originally from western Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh, my family relocated to a uh, very obscure town in central Florida, mm. uh, affectionately known as God's Waiting Room in this area, did, if that did, tells did you Will, the artistic... Did Willem Dafoe <laughs> hang out in a motel there? <laughs> oh, underground. <laughs> 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 but one of the benefits that I had was that uh, my parents uh, certainly recognized my 
um, extreme love of film at an, <laughs> at an early age, if we say that. And um, one of the things they did was to, um, given our location mm -hmm. uh, geographically, uh, took me often to Universal Studios in ah. Florida. And of course, uh, I was in love with going to there as a young as a young man, and encountered my favorite attraction there, which was the Alfred Hitchcock experience um, which was a, uh, a then kind of like a ride and, and the 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 idea of it was you first went into this replica of the psycho um, hotel and house huh. and you first were given a preview of um, a little montage of all of Hitchcock's work mm -hmm. and then you sat in a giant room in like a stadium seating where they recreated the shower scene in Psycho. <laughs> and so they called in, like, you know, the guest members from the audience would come up. They would shoot scenes. They would take different camera angles. And you were live there watching them replicate that scene. Wow. It had intros by Tony Perkins and uh, Janet. And, um, and basically then they would replay the scene that they created for you live so you could watch how it was done. <sighs> so weirdly, my first foray, even at that level, though, was just really seeing the functionality of how Hitchcock constructed cinema wow. and that was my first your childhood deep way dive than mine. that was my first deep dive into Fuck, it my parents are idiots <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, they're not here right now so i can say that out loud I'm say it freely fuck them now um no uh it's interesting because like that is i don't know if that's just a, was that just an orlando thing or was that at the hollywood one no it was as far as i know i mean i believe that was just the orlando one wow um sadly enough i heard uh, as of uh, late that it was taken down in the early 2000s and replaced with a Shrek 4D experience ride. Oh, so that tells you the current state. That fucking of the zeitgeist of our uh, country. But um, uh, no, it, but it was. Hey, just... the internet loves him. <laughs> <laughs> but what? It, no, but so it was kind of interesting because it wasn't a personal relationship at that time with Hitchcock. Um, so I have another film that was was foundational for that. But it really just introduced me to him as a craftsman. That's and how it was put together, that's which is so foundational for his work. That's amazing. That's like that. Similar to how I got introduced to Casablanca was not from the film itself, but from the behind the scenes thing that happened before the VH before the movie played. Mm, mm. Uh, and I learned every bit of secrets and knew the ending of the movie before I watched the movie. <laughs> I was ten though. I, I was still surprised. But like so. So then you see the craft, the craftsmanship that goes into mm. his films from uh, camera angles, uh, the way things are directed and edited. So what's the foundational Hitchcock film for you? Then? You know, my uh, Hitchcockian baptism, if you will, I think <laughs> for me really is uh, with the film Rope, which I know we'll be discussing a yes. bit later today. Um, I wound up later on attending um, film classes at the University of Florida from where I did my undergraduate work. Mm -hmm. And um, I was first introduced actually to Rear Window, I think, first. Mm -hmm. And again, I kind of viewed it more of a uh, a lesson plan in the construction of film. Um, Hitchcock's beautiful and meticulous formalism and how he you know, cre crafted the craft of Hitchcock. I mean, it's also an amazingly crafted story because how on earth do you do a movie where James Stewart doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly? I mean, <laughs> it's a stretch. It's, it's the, the, the running theme of this show beyond Jimmy Stewart impressions is trying to figure out how you make that work. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, that, that was where I was first introduced to some of the films, but yeah. then I remember one night, um, and we kind of had like a student film society there on campus, right on. and hanging out with a group of friends uh, I first saw Rope for the first time mm. and that is my first personal experience with the Hitchcock film which is interesting because it's one of the most raw experiences you get from his uh, storytelling acumen absolutely a yeah. deviation from his his body of work on one level but mm -hmm. um, to me I read it as a horror film 
in, in the highest sense, and I still yeah. hold that it is a horror film. Um, and I just remember being completely mesmerized by the charismatic nature of the leads, <laughs> how they could hold the room discussing um, the murder and, more importantly, the rationalization of evil, mm -hmm. um, done in such a casual a uh, casuality of privilege and wealth yeah. and and that rationalization of evil in that sense i found far more frightening than a typical horror trope right it, uh, which is so, which is a theme that exists to this day if you haven't seen ready or not yet uh that 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 whole thread is taken to the nth degree in that film um it it's it's interesting because we just we did an episode not too long ago on rope um with uh henry jarvis from the sh from real nerds and a younger man and he has we, we we took a little bit more of a comedic approach while addressing the whole how does the how does the experiment work from a mm -hmm. visual and technical standpoint so it'll be interesting to talk about rope from a more thematical place because of the tie into our discussion yeah i, I found it fascinating and i was absolutely it was also a time where i was mesmerized by um john doll's performance mm -hmm. i mean it was he the way he held the screen again the charismatic nature i think it is an absolute narrative uh, a spine toward later films like um, how they would work like American Psycho yeah. with how we deal with how the, the, the sheer force of, of a charismatic nature can induce evil yeah. in other people and how again how we rationalize it. Um, it, it to me it was also it was, it was a fundamental it was an HBO film much later on that was called Conspiracy it, uh, it had um, Kenneth Branagh Mm, it, um, and yeah. basically was just a retelling of the 1942 uh, Vonsi conference in which all of these leaders of, of the Nazi party essentially gathered to casually over Wagner and Frogras um, discuss the annihilation of over 10 million people and its rationalization. Mm. And, and so I was, became very fascinated by this idea of, of uh, how we try to rationalize that in terms of being the idea of being a superior, polite, elevated intellectual culture that can then wipe away so much evil under the rug in that context which is a, which is a which is a subject that you know it's incredibly prevalent today because of like terrible things that are going on and uh when i watch a film like rope and we'll get more into it later but when i when i watch a film like that it definitely it sets me on my edge because of just how it's it's funny because like Brandon as a character is supremely unsettling, and yet there is a there is a slight humanity to him in the mm -hmm. form of his stutter. And I think it's important when you watch it that even he's not even sure of what he's doing. Um, and and just and John Dahl's really good at giving you that sense of a, a, a guy who's gone through uh something that he wanted to do but has immediate like uh uh doubt about not doubt about what he did and why he did it but just like it's the anxiety of just like ugh, like it's not perfect hmm. enough sure. like that and that's scariest of all is because it's it, that's his humanity's coming out in the worst way absolutely um but we will talk about that as we go further um and i i think that by the time we come to the end of it, we will definitely have a better grasp on um, how uh, Hitchcock handles situations like this. So the topic at hand is ultimately the elevation of a lowbrow genre. And I say lowbrow not in a dismissive way, but Correct. contextually uh, from a historical point of view, uh, if you look at the early area eras of cinema, while steeped in lurid nature – 
people almost immediately tried um, from outside forces to prevent these subjects from having any form of elevated art. Um, the you can you can immediately point to a legion legion of decency or uh, the Hayes Code or you know which again it's a stupid thing to make the postmaster general head of censoring films it doesn't make any <laughs> fucking sense god damn it history um, but um, but also the fact that you know films of that earlier era uh, the ones that people seemed to elevate or to gravitate toward were the lurid and it was seen as a public menace to a degree. Now we are talking about with the with the, within the beginning of this subject how it deals with Britain and arguably Britain and uh, the British culture, for that matter, even to this day, has more of a macabre sense. Uh, there's there's a little bit more of a droll and uh, flat attitude when it comes to death. Um, not in the sense of it's not acknowledged, but it's just it's it's more accepted and handled in a different way than we deal with in America. Um, and consequently the humor is a lot more dark, uh, which is something that definitely uh, is attributed to Hitch uh, has attributions to Hitchcock because of the fact that, you know, you don't get something as funny as lamb to the slaughter on Alfred Hitchcock presents without having a guy who can, you know, tell a good little dark joke or two. Well, certainly. Um, and so, in the early beginnings of British cinema, um, and specifically uh, in the early years of British Gamo and Gainsborough, you have um, an industry trying to figure out what it's supposed to do. And unlike film in America, where, you know, yes, cinema starts inherently in France uh, and with the Lumiere brothers and then works works in throughout there and their original Gamo, um, which... Hey, go watch Be Natural, uh, the documentary, guys. That movie's amazing, and it'll teach you a lot. Um, uh, but British cinema uh, is kind of at a loss. It doesn't know how to stick its foot in something. Um, you have other countries like America making their marker on westerns and comedies. You have German expressionism coming out of another end. You have a little bit more of a ethereal presence coming out of like Sweden and uh, Norway and. But but Britain has no firm footing. They really don't know what they want in terms of their identity. Um, if you look at the first film that Hitchcock directed, because uh, uh, we can't look at the second one, please find the Mountain Eagle, guys. I know it's in the basement somewhere. Um, the first one, The Pleasure Garden, is very much a melodrama. It is not by any means a true Hitchcock film. Um, but it shows the technical efficiency in the craftsmanship. And Hitchcock, prior to being able to direct that, worked as a title designer for famous Lasky players. And he moves over to Gainsborough uh, and British Gamo, where he also you know, starts working with his uh, future wife, Elma Revel, uh, and does a lot of art direction, set design, and does assistant directing. So he learns the craft efficiently from a technical level. And... It's only at the point when we get to 1925 where he is able to embrace things that he loved uh, from a content sense as a child and as a young adult. Uh, early on in his career, he wrote short macabre stories and poems uh, for a magazine, uh, and then that gets transferred later into the works that he loves tackling. Uh, 
um, the first uh, film within that oeuvre uh, that he considers his tr first true picture is The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a film that really kind of sets the standard um, for a lot of different uh, angles of cinema. Um, uh, you have Ivor Novello playing The Lodger. Uh, the lodger is a mysterious man comes to stay at the bunting house and the bunting house is kind of a fear with panic over uh, a killer that's stalking the streets of London in a Jack the Ripper sense called the Avenger, mm -hmm. which when I saw, like, I remember the first time I saw the, the, the lodger was when I was in film school it was on one of those crappy bootleg prints, but it said the Avenger. And I said, Oh, I don't see Nick Fury anywhere. <laughs> and that was just well. my, that was my dumb 20 year old <laughs> self just going like, I'm clever. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's a Jack the Ripper type killer and not Iron Man. And, uh, the the suspense and tension of the film is is Ivor Novello's character the Lodger actually the Avenger, um, and right from the get go he's dealing with Jack the Ripper uh, as a subject and it's 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 already lurid enough as it is to try to tackle that but when you watch the film and especially because of restrictions of the period. The luridness, I don't think, pops out right away to a modern viewer. Um, one could argue that it is definitely um, a, uh, a, meticulously, a meticulously constructed melodrama about a man who loves a woman that he just meets, and but he has a terrible secret. But he can't tell her, her terrible, his terrible secret, and when the secret is revealed, it's not exactly what you think it is, but it's still a secret. Um, uh by the time we get to the end of the film, it is revealed that Ivor Novello's character, the Lodger, is in fact the brother of the first victim of the Avenger, and he swore on his mother's deathbed that he would catch the Avenger. Um, and uh, it doesn't even deal necessarily with the capturing of the Avenger himself. It deals with his journey and uh, a man con uh, falsely convicted of a crime. Um, which is a theme that would permeate Hitchcock it, it does. And, all well, the way through. <laughs> exactly. And the idea of how society chooses to um, both recognize um, cast dispersions and deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you actually brought up the idea of um, contextuality here. If your listeners will forgive my um, new historicist um, academic bent, um, <laughs> you have to look at the period in which um, um, Hitchcock was literally birthed into, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he actually... Um, arrives um, in the world right on the cusp uh, in Britain of the um, end of the Victorian um, era and right into the beginning of the Edwardian era. Mm -hmm. So um, England at that time is absolutely um, rustling with the idea of what constitutes the stratification mm. of class system and intellig intelligentsia within its arts and mm. entertainment, right? Yeah. So you have the idea of films um, that are supposed to have what would be deemed highbrow art or high art in which um, a larger theme context um, part of your relationship to your um, national history and, and national construct are all embedded into it. Right. So there's subtext there. Whereas um, the genres of low art were to be um, content with mere reactive engagement with an audience, often at the expense. Of you could call it exploitation today. Absolutely. Um, like that's definitely the term. And, you know, I'm sure if Quentin Tarantino were here, he'd say, <laughs> yes, that's right. I dig it. Uh, but you're, <laughs> exactly. But you're right. It, it is it is dealing with like it's breaking a boundary of what's acceptable and what's not. And it's something that permeates his career. And coming out of the Victorian era, going into the Edwardian, you do have 
a broader embrace of i mean i guess the best way to kind of pinpoint it would be stuff like a, a penny dreadful or like sherlock holmes mysteries even have that bent of darkness that mm-hmm. you wouldn't expect outside of that and you also have like early english authors kind of coming in and you know like even if it's not like super dark um and and you you get the sense that people are wanting to release a lot of uh pent up thoughts <laughs> and it's coming out in very interesting ways so with a film like the lodger it doesn't necessarily break a ground per se in that like it's been done um whether it was do- but it hasn't really been done in london to the to the fullest extent like and at least in terms of a cinematic vision Th- that's right and i mean even though it borrows heavily from um german expressionism as well yeah we'll Cal- go into stylistically oh, yeah. caligari and this film are in love with each other uh, absolutely <laughs> and, and remember um, hitchcock you know basically learned some of his craft there at ufa studios so it's L- part a of- lot from murnau and mm-hmm. lang and all those wonderful giants but, but i love the fact and you and i discussed this going into it why i love that we're opening with the lodger in this idea of still what would be considered a within its time frame a lower genre rather um, exploitative genre as you mentioned uh, mm-hmm. kind of like with uh, lowbrow culture um, what I love about it is and it, permit me to just vent on this a little bit sure um, I, <laughs> when it comes to horror and I kind of I, again with thriller suspense horror of which mm-hmm. Hitchcock is an is a unequivocal master of yeah um, it always struck me that the European auteurs and to a lesser extent some other international auteurs um, didn't seem to ever get the memo that it's okay to work in this genre and be amazing at it. Oh, yeah. Um, it doesn't have the stigma that it did with um, American filmmakers who would relegate it to a trash genre that serious directors wouldn't ply their trade in. Which is bullshit. That's absolute <laughs> bullshit. Right? And, you know, I mean, a lot of it, I think, again, it goes back to the historical context. I mean, you know... You, like many things, um, the whole shape of culture and postmodernism begins with the advent, the utter destruction of, of World War One. Yeah, and you know, but but America and Europe have vastly different paths, right? Where right. where um, America experiences death abroad, right? Right. Um, for Europe, it is the absolute and utter devastation of your homeland, your your culture, your society, of the rules. The the, the destruction is in your face. It's it's present. In the moment. Absolutely. It's not a thought that travels far away. It's immediate. And it's that distance. It's exactly right. It's the distance of that. In the sense so that whenever um, the the birth of the um, psychological thriller or psychological horror film finds itself birthed in Europe through these these movements. Exactly. And it's because it is internalized, right? Mm -hmm. We are... The utter destruction makes us look at where were our failures, right? The enemy was within. It was within our systems, yeah. within our structures, within ourselves. Right. So the the idea for European directors was that horror should be an internalized study and deconstruction. Yeah. Whereas um, for a lot of American cinema early on, it's relegated to the other, the external threat, to invasions, to monsters, to things that come to us. Differences. Exactly Differences right. Differences are scary, aren't right? they? Right, exactly. And 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 not all and, and you know you know, to to caveat a little bit, it, not all of it is is necessarily that, but the predominance of it exactly. is it's, it's very much um, I mean, like we talk about Universal Monsters so much because that was our foundation at the time for American horror. Um, outside of your stranded examples, but horror had a hard time in the early years kind of identifying itself in this country. 
um, and it borrows from every angle possible. Like somebody like James Whale really likes Paul mm. Lenny, um, and you have uh, Robert Flory even getting inspirations from different angles of European and international cinema. And so within that, we've learned over – it's taken us way much longer to learn about how to internalize those fears and tell appropriate stories according to that internalization. Oh, I agree. And I, we're in that moment now, exactly. I might argue, right? We're yeah. in this new wave of horror, if you will, where you know it's a metaphor is monster yeah. and looking at the internal – uh, struggles of our own society as representative for that. But again, Europeans kind of knew this from the beginning. So their auteurs had absolutely no problem um, proudly making yeah. great art within these genres. I mean, you had like, like, like a list. You have your you know, Polanskis, your, uh, your Haneke's, your um, Bergman, um, Zavovsky, um, Murnau, Fritz Lang. Everyone delved into these. These great auteurs yeah. had no problem. And that is a tradition that Hitchcock is coming from that I think makes him so amazing, but different from some of these auteurs in a way, was that he has no problem learning this European auteurship and this craft and the idea of the internalization of the horror landscape through the self, mm. which he employs brilliantly in his films, but at the same time remained a populist at heart. Mm -hmm. um, he remained a filmmaker who absolutely loved and was proud. I mean, his own humble roots. His father was a grocer. He definitely grew up as a uh, Roman Catholic and of, an, <laughs> of a class system in England at that time. Working with the Jesuits. Right. It's always a fun time. <laughs> he, was a, he was fundamentally an outsider. Yeah. And so he took that view, and I think that... Um, this idea of, of operating within genres that would have been looked down upon by this highly um, class stratified, moralistic and repressionistic culture at the time in the Edwardian era mm -hmm. um, really is what sets him apart. And I think is a perfect launching point for why he would go into the lodger. And cool. make that is quick side note. Yeah. If you want a film uh, audience that uh, can kind of give you a sense of what might be going on in his internal clockwork watch, I confess mm. uh, that's a film that um, despite the, the actor not listening to Hitchcock and doing the method <laughs> thing, which, Hey, you know, everybody has their own thing, but that, that those themes are directly uh, tied into, to that because of how it deals with a priest who hears a confession and it's but anyway to get back to the lodger what's interesting um about what you're saying and how he is grasping at these european roots the lodger is steeped in uh expressionist cinema absolutely the shadows are harsh they're angular uh there's a cookie cutter on set somewhere. I know there is <laughs> um but um I mean and you get you have innovative kind of shots that break within the tradition of established reality one of the most iconic shots that every behind the scenes featurette ever shows is of uh the uh, the the bunting family looking up at the stairs and then you see that through the gla glass through a, through a yes. glass plate that they s installed you watch him pacing the floor as if though they are able to have that x-ray vision and just kind of like they're figuring out in their heads what is he doing um, but some of the most interesting aspects of The Lodger come from how it's ad immediately addressing uh, a serial killer or a crazed killer type of atmosphere and motif, but not really, you know, you see one or two of the killings, but you don't interact with the killer. We don't put a face to him. We know Ivor Novello as The Lodger and our suspicions plant the face of a killer on him right. until the end but we don't deal with the actual killer we don't really deal with the psychology right away because at the time it's not necessarily there um 
you look at headlines from the era and the way people talked about murder back then, um, even up till the 50s, you have a lot of people really kind of just saying crazed killer or madman on the loose. There's no clinical term to really apply to something of the crimes of this nature. And so what he does instead is kind of turn – he takes a melodramatic idea and turns it more into a character study of guilt uh, – like a false guilt um, uh, and uh, internalized anger. And, you know, Ivor Novello is really good in the film because he's – you know, it's silent acting, but he's he's filled with frustration. He's filled with uh, anxiety. His – and – there the the scenes with the with the paintings on the wall and asking him to be removed it's it's mm. one of those like small ticks that he brings to a character that while not the killer has killer tendencies and that's what throws us off the track oh absolutely and I, what what i what, an element that i really love about it is i think and why this would be considered sorry let me i smack the mic oh yeah you're fine <laughs> let me just read it out um, it's been a bad boy <laughs> <laughs> why I think this film is so foundational, why it's a perfect launching point for of the four films that we kind of brought to the table here is because of that connective tissue. Mm-hmm. I, um, he's fascinated. Hitchcock has spent a career being fascinated not only by um, high crime, by um, the, um, how do I want to say here, the deviation of societal norms and our inner turmoil, our Certain inner Certain peculiarities. Exactly right, as he did that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not only has he, has he been fascinated by that, but I think he's far more interested in how society views these things, right? In other words, how it affects the zeitgeist of, of constructive, the constructed narrative of a particular society and culture. And particularly the mob mentality. There's Precisely. a lot of mob mentality. Uh, not necessarily throughout each of the films, but there's a societal opinion that permeates throughout each of the films we're discussing, and and the the event uh, the the lodger is very much the most externalized of that. Absolutely, and it's first foray into that. Right, it's not only we all know of of Hitchcock's um, basic fear and anxiety toward authority figures, but mm-hmm. in a way, this also represents and harkens back to that idea of utter destruction post war in Europe of just the also failure of mm-hmm. authoritative institutions yeah. to protect or to catch, or to serve, or to dole out justice. Hitchcock is also just absolutely fascinated that we allow society in so many ways to have to try to be the arbiter of how we confine our villains and demons and tormentors. Yeah, to dictate it. And, it, you know, it's it's an issue we are we still deal with today with, like, not to say that the Internet is, like, a completely negative monster, but it has become that arbiter in a way that, let's say the the local town hall meeting might have been back about 50 years ago um and he handles society's role in this uh particularly in the lodger i think from a very populist broad point mm-hmm. of view um as we've said and as you and i'm glad you pointed it out hitchcock is a populist at the end of the day but it doesn't deter him from knowing how to do it correctly um, he's definitely he, he's always said I like to play the audience like a fiddle <laughs> and that's and that's ultimately his you know attraction to the to the art and the craft of cinema is that he likes to see the reaction and so he knows what the audience wants and I think with the, the lodger and particularly in the climax where Ivor Novello is being hunted down um, it's 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 a very uh, it's there's a lot of tie-in visually to a film that comes out not too long uh 
like not not within the same time frame, which is the Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. uh, Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera, directed by um, uh, uh, Rupert Julian, who the mob mentality in that climax is very similar from a visual standpoint, um, but but they're not I don't they're not influenced by each other, but it's just as if though they have the right idea about how to approach that like you know mob mentality and with with the lodger i think it's interesting how they're so quick to latch on to the scraps of information they get mm, and it's mm. very relevant today um and also we have uh, a a situation of trying to process a crime so horrible in the case of the lodger it's not uh, the the, deta- the details are broad. They're not specific. They're not meticulous. And as we've said before, they're not clinical. Um, and I feel like at the end of the day, you know, you're 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 basically trying to sum- summarize an experience like the Jack the Ripper case in a way that the modern that the, the the common man can understand, and that's what he does. But he approaches it from an intelligent point of view. He doesn't try to um, go above anybody's head. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is an event that was, you know, uh, foundational to the cultural zeitgeist of, of, of England at the time. It was only some 36 years removed from the, the last confirmed crime that this film comes out. Right. So, yes, he plays with this idea wonderfully of how um, society's memory, it's, it's, it's constructed memory, affects how such things are viewed and, and, and our, our cultural response to these types of crimes and ultimately terror that becomes a theme in the film. Right. I, I, what I love, one quote from, from Hitch on this is where he um, mentions about The Lodger that this was the first film in which he truly was allowed and asserted his style yep. um, at the time. And so you're also starting to see the introductions of these themes that will be in, in many of the film's basically most of the films of his career. Um, it's the introduction of the wrong man, as you said, right, of an innocent person who society still has not deemed um, through transference of guilt to be um, restituted. Um, you also deal with the first time with the infusion of fetishism and mm-hmm. with sexual violence um, alongside of sexual gratification, a theme that we'll be right. dealing with quite a bit, speaking. And, and yeah, and I mean, with with The Lodger because of the era it's in, it's not as overt. But if you are watching the film and gathering it from the information you get, like you get, you understand what's going. On. Absolutely. Um, it's not, it's not there immediately. It's your pay. It's a silent film. You got to pay attention to it. Sorry guys. <laughs> I know it's very hard to watch black and white things that don't talk, but well, not only we being are. a populist, I will also um, assert that at heart Hitchcock, always wanted to be a silent filmmaker oh yeah well we've talked about pure cinema on this podcast more mm-hmm. than i can ever uh ever, ever thought i would <laughs> and um you know this is this is his purest film in that regard because of what he accomplishes with it um it's interesting though um because uh uh in the article for rope um that i wrote um i talked a tiny bit about uh hitchcock doing color um for the first time but really uh the truth is this is his first uh, diving into the world of color because mm-hmm. of the way the film was tinted. Exactly. Um, if you wa- uh, I mean, this is not my idea, but if you watch uh, the Criterion version of The Lodger, which is a beautiful piece of work from the Criterion end, um, there is a visual essay where he, where the, the narrator points out um, how uh, Hitchcock communicates the feeling you're supposed to have through the way the film is tinted. 
And that's why the restoration of that proper tinting was important and needed to be done and brought to life by Criterion, like released by Criterion. It right. wasn't like right. I think the BFI was the one who did the restoration, but because uh, the tint inside the Bunting House is very warm, it's orange, it's or like a, a mm-hmm. kind of like a amberish kind of color. Um, I'm just gonna call it orange. Um, outside Our during transition the, into night, yeah, exactly. Then you have a blue tint, like a harsh blue tint. Um, when it's not clear what's going on, um, there's no tint on this particular print possibly because it couldn't be restored, but I'd like to think it's more intentional because, uh, it's just straight up black and white. So it's a little bit more ambiguous based on the feel that we've been getting prior. Um, so he's already experimenting with color, even though it's not a firm grasp in terms of like technicolor, like, but he's also not the kind of filmmaker who's going to go and do the hand painted cells in a millier right. style. No, of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, but regardless, he, he makes this film, this film, he actually, it's funny. He makes this, uh, just after the mountain Eagle, but both have a hard time getting released because mm. of the, uh, the the distributor in particular didn't think it was worth anything, but then it got kind of spread around and got to the critics, and eventually it it blows him up, and Hitchcock becomes the first true voice of British cinema. This is where Britain finds its identity for filmmaking. It's not its strict identity, uh, but it is the beginnings of how we can then blossom forward in the British film industry. You're absolutely right. I mean, the studio hated it, essentially, at oh, the yeah. beginning. Um, yeah. they, they brought in the uh, famed and noted um, critic um, Montague, basically, to come in and say, try to fix this, try to salvage it. And um, ironically enough, though, when he worked with Hitchcock, he basically loved what had already been done and only gave him some advice on some title cards and on some color tinting, as we just talked about. Exactly. So, um, and, yeah, uh, as, as Hitchcock uh, has said himself in various interviews it was startling because this was a film he thought was going to end his career mm-hmm. and with a span of a few months suddenly it is being hailed as the best film britain has made yeah exactly and and then you he's able from there to have if you look at the history of it it's not exactly carte blanche but he is wanted uh his touch is wanted all across the gamut right away though even after the lodger he still kind of falls uh, into different realms of uh, early silent cinema that are a little s- particularly like of the era, like Downhill and Juno and the Paycock and a lot of other like silent films that he does. Um, uh, uh, the Manx Man is one in particular where they're not necessarily dealing with these lurid subjects. Like there's, there's, there's a human drama there, but it's right. very much, uh, uh, they're stories of their time. They still work, but we consider them melodramatic or Star Wars prequels. You know, like they're just kind of <laughs> they're, they're they're fine. Um, but uh, but uh, he goes through the British Gamo period when sound does come around. It's where he's able to really flourish and shine in these lurid examples of uh, what what storytelling can be, whether it's murder, blackmail. Um, you have young and innocent uh, man who knew too much. The lady vanishes. Um, even to Jacob, Jamaica, and to a lesser extent, uh, where you can kind of push further into the lurid and the seedy and the grimy. Um, he comes to America, uh, makes films with an amphetamine addict named David Oselznik. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to drop that. Um, uh, it hasn't been released yet, but my Rebecca episode is me railing against Selznick, and <laughs> I think I sound like a jerk, but whatever. Um, but, uh, but he makes films with Selznick, um, doesn't really like the restriction about him. So 
He uh, teams up with an old friend from the new from Britain called Sidney Bernstein. Uh, Sidney Bernstein brings him over to Europe initially uh, to help with the war effort by sure. making a documentary called uh, Concentration Camp Factual Survey, uh, German Concentration Camp Factual Survey, which was supposed to be the, Brit the British public's exposition to or expo ex exposing of the uh, crimes that the Nazis committed in the concentration camps. Basically, it was supposed to be Britain's version of what George Stevens did exactly. uh, when he shot films in Europe that were later used at the Nuremberg trials. Um, and which, you know, Stevens's film was widely circulated in a different way. But most films of the war period um, that were made by these filmmakers uh, were released, but not all of them were. I mean, the, the the biggest example is that John Huston's Let There Be Light was not allowed to be seen for years. Uh, but uh, Hitchcock and Bernstein's film um, is kind of shelved after one screening, and it's mainly just, it has a lot to do with holding on to different parts of Europe and dealing with the Soviet um, conflict in it, within that, trying to grasp like right. who gets what land and uh, it's politics uh, and land grabbing and nonsense. But the thing that uh, forms out of this alliance during the war is Bernstein and Hitchcock decide they want to get into business for themselves and forego the Selznicks of the world. So when Selznick's contract with Hitchcock expires, Hitchcock and Bernstein form Transatlantic Pictures, the goal being that they can do productions both in London and in America uh, and then they secured a distribution deal with Warner Brothers Pictures to put out the films. Um, and the first two that they were going to do were under Capricorn and Rope. Under Capricorn falls into a delay because of Ingrid Bergman's involvement. And so thus we get Rope first. And Rope, as I discussed a little bit on the uh, fourth episode with Henry, uh, has, you know, it, it's an experiment. It's a technical achievement. Um, and it's... It's amazing how much it can hold up, even though people like to nitpick um, how the technical acumen doesn't like hold up the way the experiment wants it to. I argue that it does. You just have to meet it on its level. I, I argue the same. And, yeah. and, and in a way, too, I think that um, what also was great about the four films we, we settled on, they also sometimes often are the most dismissed of Hitchcock's films mm -hmm. simply because they don't seem to match the Hitchcock stylism that people were comfortable with. Like, in a way... I'm much more interested and in love with the Hitchcock films that almost don't seem like a Hitchcock film. Yeah, I right? agree. And, um, it's not exactly pertaining to this, but I really like Topaz, even though nobody exactly. likes Topaz. Not even Hitchcock <laughs> like Topaz. Like I think I, I think you, I, and Leonard Balton are the only ones that We're like Topaz. We form a society of <laughs> yeah, some. Yeah, the, some the Topaz society of nonsense. <laughs> um, but yes, it's it's a film that like I think be I. I personally feel because it's so raw in his approach, like it is like it's it's uncut, it's unfiltered to an extent of his technical approach that I think it throws people off a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the content is pure Hitchcock, pure Hitchcock, pure Hitchcock. Um, a little bit of background for uh, Rope is that it is it's based on a play called Rope's End by Patrick Hamilton, which in turn is obviously if not referenced immediately, directly inspired by the Leopold, Leopold uh, Loeb murder case in Chicago. Basically, two privileged children kill their classmate because they want to prove that they're superior. Um, the subject has been handled in other films. I've never seen them. I don't know what their quality is by, by any stretch. But 
the concept of killing at a young age is something that's still prevalent. As I said before, with stuff like the Beware the Slender Man documentary that came out not too long ago, um, which people say is flawed, flawed because it doesn't talk about Slender Man, and I go, that's not the point. That's not the point at all. Um, and uh, But uh, Rope, uh, as a film, immediately takes stuff that was in The Lodger and really pushes it. <laughs> I guess if there's an in-between with Rope and uh, The Lodger, it's Shadow of a Doubt. But Shadow of a Doubt has, I think, a different focus compared to these films that we're talking about. But the idea of a killer is there and expanded upon in Shadow of a Doubt. But it also has a lot to do with how it invades hometown America. Um, And also Joseph Cotton's motivations in that film are much more ambiguous and even slightly different in terms of just like it's it's kind of more of a money thing for right, him exactly uh even though he's clearly crazy um um <laughs> uh, you know you have to be to work with orson wells i guess um <laughs> in the best uh, way it's, it's that's not a, that's, that's a kind joke i love orson wells he'll be the next subject soon um but rope is pushing boundaries on how we discuss a cr- killers killing the way murder is talked about and philosophized about um the the basic story of rope to reiterate for for audiences is two young men kill their classmates stick them in a trunk and hold a party with the young man's family and presence amongst other people uh in order to commit the perfect crime and get away with it to prove their nietzschean superiority exactly right it's Nietzschean Um, philosophy just expounded upon and the idea of also the absolutism of the idea that superiority and wealth determine how we can purge society which is scary and it's haunts my nightmares every day scary as hell oh yeah it, it it it's an eternally relevant subject like um like my co-hosts i think got a little annoyed when i was pounding that point on the ready or not review but i was just like no it's, this is this is why <laughs> right? it's a horror movie it's why it's not just a thriller mystery like clue like, <laughs> like um, no exactly but but that, but so Approaching it the way he does, though, and I think people get distracted by the technical acumen of the film sometimes, so it's hard to really dig into this. They kind of just say, that story is great, but let's talk about the tech. Mm. No, let's talk about the story story. because Rope is two young men really who are inspired by Rupert Cadell, uh, their flippant – like bullshit professor uh, played wonderfully by James Stewart. And I still think one of the funniest things in the world is where he just throws his beliefs under the bus within the span of five seconds. <laughs> as soon as he sees it. Like, and it's only because from a story point, we have to make him a good guy because he's Jimmy Stewart. Right, right. But <laughs> his flippancy with discussing, like, think of how much, Think of how much time and energy it would save if we just killed off the unnecessary people. Right, like right. it would Step make over your waiter with a flip of the knife. Point. Exactly, it would make standing in line for theater tickets much more bearable. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, to inform your uh, your view your listeners, we did not practice our Stuart impressions. D- no, 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 there was no, no collaboration no, th- beforehand. We're being inhabited by his ghost in a in a split <laughs> Quite format. Quite poorly at this. Stage. Yeah, I'm. I, I, you know that. I mean, I I think I could be a great Wyatt Burp. <laughs> from Five Goes West. Oh. <laughs> um but uh yeah it's and uh I was watching that with my nephew earlier today, that's how I know. Um but uh but yeah, no, he he's 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 going a step further, but he's not clinically uh diagnosing anything, primarily because mm. 
this is more dealing with a philosophy and of the privileged. And so it's hard, especially at that time to pinpoint a clinical term. So instead it comes from a more political angle. It does. And what, what, one thing that I really love about this film is that even though, again, you, as you pointed out, your source material here is 1929. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though the Nietzschean aspect of the philosophy that's being scrutinized was present um, both with the original killers, it was there with the play. This film takes place post World War II, of course. Yeah. And I love the they have that um, that searing moment where they actually reference Adolf Hitler yeah. and his employment of these same philosophies to bring it into its its time frame politically. It's interesting how they go. Oh, Hitler was a moron compared to, <laughs> yeah, exactly. compared to a us. Savage. Yeah, just a savage, a brainless savage. Yeah. But another thing that I love about this that carries over from the Lodger and um, like so one of my favorite little small points of the Lodger is that flashing title card. Right, you're mm. introduced to like golden curls, right? And yeah. you just kind of see this flashing. Yeah. And what Hitchcock is employing there so brilliantly is his first introduction of the idea of the seductive nature of sensationalism, yeah. our approach to using um, lurid tales of murder and crime in a way that it allows us to project our, our modern fears and anxieties, kind of in a way it replaces our, our uh, like folklore, right? It's our modern, sadly enough, often our modern version of folklore. Yeah, and exactly. The cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, but by him using that as a form of neon advertising, mm-hmm. it makes you complicit in wanting to be a part of and a witness to and present in the story that's because happening. you're susceptible to the to the tactic that he's employing exactly which is right. something that if you do it in a something that is pre the light bulb it's a little harder to uh engage in it directly uh so therefore you have a specific point of view on it and he does this also in Rope. In Rope, absolutely. Because Rope is a series of wonderful lighting cues <laughs> happening, near, especially near the end. Like, and I don't say that as a joke. Like, it is, oh. like, from the technical acumen real quick, like, it, that lighting grid is incredible. And it sets the standard for stuff you see in the rear window down the line. Um, but he uses that neon to full effect uh, to signal different emotional cues, especially from Rupert. Uh, but also the very end of the film where it's steeped in silence. Absolutely. Well, and again, he makes you complicit within this film. We are there from the present um, of the initial murder. We are watching the dinner party, and only the two killers and we, the audience, are aware of what's inside that trunk at the time, right? Which is the ticking time bomb theory that, or the the, the bomb under the table, um, which is at first employed in Sabotage, where Hitchcock said, all right, fucked it up didn't i, I killed that <laughs> i killed, killed that killed kid little boy why did i do that uh, <laughs> alma was i drunk that night when i wrote that no, no you wrote it oh well we're all fucked who killed cock robin uh, <laughs> but yeah no he does he uses that bomb on the table and one of the best shots in rope in my opinion is when it just moves to the chest and uh the maid is gathering the stuff off the chest after the buffet's done and he holds on that thing super long. Absolutely. Draws right? it out. And thus the silence of our own complicity there just mirrors perfectly his political statement that he's trying to employ there post-World War II, right? Not only for Germany, but from an extension of humanity. We are often complicit in our silence at being aware that evil is there and our failure to stop it or to, to speak up. Yeah. Or the, and, and I'll go even further. Oftentimes we feel like we have no ability to stop it. And so we we kind of fall into lethargy in that degree. Mm. Um, I feel like, you know, when you have the, um, the sister-in-law, I believe it's the sister-in-law um, of uh, uh, Kentley's, uh, the, of Mr. Kentley is basically trying to understand Cadell's position 
along with everybody else in the group for that matter. But it's almost as if those characters would never be able to stop something like that because they're still not sure how to process it. So you're and you're being thrown broad, terrible ideas uh, within the span of an 80 minute, 80 minute movie. So the complicity of the audience can also be attributed to they're going to have an internal conflict uh, in a different way, not necessarily from the philosophy, but just on how to handle it and how to react emotionally, um, which I wanted to ask you as a fan of rope. Um, I have the, I have a theory that uh, the film because of its suspenseful attributes is actually one of the most pure forms of uh, not just that bomb theory, but also the way he draws out suspense. It's the purest form of it. Do you feel uh, with your experience or others that you talk to about rope that it, uh, it, it, it loses the viewer's interest because I can mm. see how that can be an argument. And I've read different reviews that say that, but I'm like, I don't see it because the subject that we're discussing is the attraction of the film. It is the grasp. I agree oh, wholeheartedly. It. It, it never lost it for me. Yeah. So I don't know if I don't understand how that criticism gets thrown about. I'm just like, you're talking about two guys who just put a body in a chest even if we already know that they did it and that that's our suspension point, I want to know when the bomb's going to explode or emotionally at le- at the very least. Exactly right. People literally eating off the corpse exactly. in this um, extreme perversion of the Catholic ritualism. He's pushing your buttons. Right? Exactly. Yeah. The transference of guilt onto the entire <laughs> dinner party. My God. But no, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that it is, uh, for me, it, it proved to be the most suspenseful. Yeah, of of most of Hitchcock's work for me, and holding me to to the end and the ultimate catharsis of the film. Exactly, and so and you and by the end you do have the the, the insanity of his uh, of his sudden uh, belief change, <laughs> which is, which is a valid critique. It, it's actually actually I find it realistic because it's one thing to talk. It's another thing to see it. <laughs> Certainly. I've I've had experiences like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, you can't it, – like, it, it, some people have said it's a little abrupt. And I'm like, yes, it is because he's – because of the way Stewart's playing it. But it works just fine. And by the end of it, you are kind of left with the, the next – possible iteration of his of Hitchcock's uh, understanding of how killers like this work where it's very reactionary I would say it's not and not even from the societal sense per se it's also a personal like before Cadell says it's not what I'm going to do it's what society's going to do he's working it out and actually like you don't even see the beliefs being thrown away away immediately you see him build up to a true moral standard by the end of the film because of what he's experienced. It's shock and it's pure shock that motivates it, but you see the evolution and it's almost like you see Hitchcock understanding more and more how to interpret this. So it goes beyond a flippant statement, a political ideal, a, uh, 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 it, it, it has truly gone beyond things that are in comprehension. So the film kind of leaves you with, okay, well, what what other thing could it be? And it does become mental by the time we get to the next film. Um, in between Rope and our next film, you have further examinations of how far this goes. Strangers on a Train, I think, is one of the Probably brightest the examples. Logical, yeah. yeah. And, and it's the beginning of the Hitchcock golden period where you have a lot of um, 
things going on in it. But I think rope ultimately its beauty as a subject is that it, it asks us to confront our, our own interpretation of how we feel towards others, but not directly. Like you have to get there. Uh, I think that cause you hear a philosophy like that and you go, that's nonsense. But then you have to start looking at yourself, go like, how often do you judge people? <laughs> no, it's, it's so true, right? Yeah. And it's, it's such an audacious film. And also, as you pointed out too, one that's also just uniquely layered with uh, subtext and with coding. I mean, obviously, we don't speak too much on it, but I mean, just look at all the, the gay subtext of its cast, its screenwriter. Exactly. Um, what Hitchcock yeah. was playing with as far as a repressive society, still, you know, uh, with the employment of what was acceptable to discuss right. uh, in film at that time and in society. Yeah, and it's something, and he's not a stranger to it. The Lady Vanishes deals with it a lot with mm -hmm. the uh, with our with our two bumbling characters who want to see a cricket match. Um, uh, and uh, and he delves, with, he delves with it another way. Saboteur has a most interesting one where, uh, uh, where one of the villains is just like I used to be a, I used to be a little boy. When I was a little boy, I had golden curls, and all the all <laughs> the neighborhood would admire me. And I'm like, ah, okay, <laughs> neat. <laughs> uh, but, um, but like with but with rope, it's direct. It is. It's the absolutely. most direct you've gotten to this point, and a lot of that comes from the the um uh adaptation of the piece not by Hugh, not Cronin's end but um Arthur Lorenz's end yes because yes. you are trying to flat out interpret a british play into an american point of view and it comes out that way but Hitchcock doesn't shy from it. He embraces it. Absolutely embraces it. Even though the studio at the time referred to it um, as it. As it. <laughs> we will deal with it. Uh, these characters will be it. it yeah, it's, it's and shocking. And keep in mind, this is at a time when Warner Brothers was calling it it before Bill Skarsgård put on some makeup and yeah, uh, a, assumed yeah, Tim right? Curry. The you know, that's the that, – see, we have a different it now, that. but that was the it back then. That was then. the it of the time. Yeah, right? Stephen King didn't write a thousand-page book about it, but <laughs> – no, no, but the ultimate idea of, like I said, the outsider and, and the purveyor of society looking mm -hmm. in in repression that he deals with so so lovingly the initial play as you well know dealt with it quite openly that our oh, two yeah. protagonists very... are, are lovers and that also rupert's character is a former lover of both yeah men. it was which, quite open which is a very when you watch it through ropes lens it's very interesting to see how stewart's performance plays out in that respect because it's not supremely clear but it is <laughs> it's well, strange. <laughs> one, well, one brilliant little story I heard was, um, and it was from Laurentis, uh, his private secretary at the time, who said, well, all the actors on board knew they were playing oh, gay characters. Um, Hitchcock knew it was these were gay characters. We knew they were gay characters. Only Jimmy Stewart didn't realize that he was gay within this within the film. Wait, what? <laughs> in other words, it was wait, I mean, the idea. This is in 1978, by the way. Stewart's, Stewart's watching it, and his grandson tells him something. <laughs> what? <laughs> the fuck are you talking about little boy exactly right so i mean but I, I just love that that opening sequence to do one final touch on that of just how and this is what i mean by the audaciousness the playfulness there's a release in that scene yes i mean you know you're 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 coming in from this god shot the the the, the drapes are closed you hear a man cry out ah. you slowly go into the room and the two men are quivering 
still after the act. Which, right? by the way, David's body being that limp is the, one of the creepiest things Hitchcock's ever done in his career. It's just because of the way he's sitting on it. Exactly. And like what Truffaut brought out from Hitchcock in their famous series of interviews was this idea and fascination, preoccupation, you might say, Hitchcock had with the idea of how close the tremble of of violence and fear is to the tremble of ecstasy mm-hmm. and you he just throws it right in your face with those two characters <laughs> yeah. right they start panting and exhaustion after what they've I done i need a drink they I don't want to don't turn on the light yet yeah. and light up a, i mean it's just marvelous yeah and which Hitch, hitchcock does that so brazingly and i would even argue lovingly with it i thought was just was marvelous it, yeah it's a great and it, it it and like i say we 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 get further sense of things he wants to elaborate on but at the time he's dealing with knowledge that he has in immediate society but also what his own intuition is that's right um and and in that in between period between now and like in in the next film he's learning more and more about it i think a lot of uh how he learns to expand upon it does come from rear window even though what he's dealing with in Rear Window is a big old MacGuffin um, because uh, Burr's Raymond Burr as the murderer is a huge MacGuffin compared to the actual story, which I'm not going to do the joke again, but it's the Grace <laughs> Kelly thing. But like, but that is a that is an inherent like examination from afar, and by the time we get to um, uh, 1959, going into 1960, we have. A different understanding, but not by Hitchcock's doing. It comes from a little killing uh, situation that happened in uh, Plainfield, Wisconsin, uh, with a little uh, little known character named Ed Gein, uh, who with some mother issues. Yeah, killed some women, skinned them, uh, made a suit, and uh, inspired a generation of Buffalo Bills. You know, like (laughs) it. it, But and and you know, it's a tragedy and it's a terrible thing that happened and. It inspires a macabre sense. It really breaks an illusion for this country at the least, at the very least, uh, if not abroad. I, I would imagine there's an, a broad kind of shock to the vulgarity of the crime. But here it breaks us a little bit, even though the details as specific as they would get don't come out immediately. But basic facts are heard. That's right. And that, And the basic fact that we hear is a man dressed up like a woman kill or had mother issues robert block latches onto that right right. psycho as more of a trashy affair with a with a very dark sense of humor it's a good book it's but it's decidedly not what the movie is um and uh hitchcock gets it uh he's trying to make a he's really trying to deviate from the north by northwest of it all um he makes a gamble with this with this story and pitches it to Paramount. Paramount says, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Which I've always said, to be fair, if I were Paramount, I'd be freaked out too. Because up to that point, he'd only made two or three very successful films for them in their contract. And then everything else he did that was successful was at other studios between 1949 and 1959. Right. Um, and you want, as your last film with him, to be something successful. Instead, you get Psycho, which is <laughs> successful, but Paramount doesn't benefit from it. They really don't at all. Yeah, and, because um... of that beautiful, beautiful deal. <laughs> Oh my God, it's so true. But um, what, what I what also is kind of fascinating about this one is, out of all the four films that all in some way deal with the sensational 
institutionalized viewpoint that society holds in the fascination with real crimes that permeated. Yeah. This one follows the closest to the actual events. This one is also is precarious enough that, I mean, uh, Gein is actually um, excerpts from his trial and the atrocities from the trial are there in 57. The novel comes out in 59. Yeah. I mean, this is right in the moment of yeah. the zeitgeist it's surrounding the, this. It's the most immediate reaction right. we get to a subject of this nature and you know, we did two hours and 47 minutes on Psycho, so I'm not going to recount the plot again. <laughs> um, I will tell you that it is an amazing Is there a spoiler picture. in this film? Uh, 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 some dude in a dress kills the peoples and then has to go into the big room and he says he's not going to kill a bug. And, and then a skull pops up in a cross montage. It's incredible. You should watch The Psychos. <laughs> Tony Perkins. But... I don't know what that character was, by the way, but I love it. Um, but but we deal in Psycho immediately. It's we are a, we we get to the clinical finally. We get to a clinical approach to these lurid dark tales. Prior to Psycho, in the immediacy um, of just like how do you deal with a madman killer, it's trashy, but not like not in a bad way. It's just that it's perceived that way. You get a lot of drive-in features of this nature, sure. or you get uh, horror films from Universal that are definitely on the B side in terms of not in terms of the subject, but in terms of how they're made. It's really about how they're made. Ultimately, the the innovation of Psycho is that what if I took a a film idea that is supremely drive-in material and I make it good. Uh, or elevate it. And I don't like the term elevation of a genre because, again, we are talking about, you know, like a subject that is universal and uh, right. and, and right. important. But Hitchcock does, as he does with the first two films and as he does now, elevates something that is That's supremely right. trashy by the current by the context of the of the period. So Psycho operates, though as very much a crowd pleaser. Oh, it he is, plays it just for its base reactive nature. Yeah, he says audience. it's a comedy, which which is correct. <laughs> he says that in interviews. Right, right. And it's not it's not untrue. Um but it does it does decidedly step away from the intelligentsia of rope and becomes much more of a I don't want to say a pot boiler, but it's very much a uh, it's very much a like it, it, it hooks you in. It is a horror movie like it, 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 it has the fascination and the grasp and the attention of it, even though the most horrific horror film themed aspects don't appear until the very end. But the whole film is played out as such, even with the even with the beginning with Marion Crane, because you are dealing with, you know, human behavior, human compulsion how society views a person, particularly women. Um, we've had the discussion that Hitchcock's not always the best with women, but there are, there are angles that you can see this from. And what's interesting is that her perception of herself from society's opinion in terms of her relationship with Sam is interesting and fascinating. And the first 40 minutes are dedicated to that notion um, that, and also the fact that she steals some money from a drunk Texan and, you know, like you, you get different out. You get different angles of society's point of view. And uh, our previous guest on the Psycho episode did point to her as the first of the three psychos in the film because of how she is, quote unquote, acting irrationally or taking a chance or a risk or a gamble. I tend to think of it ultimately as is that it's it's delving into a seedy type of crime noir uh, detective story. Um, or like a or a dame on the run kind of thing before you 
move into the Norman Bates of it all. Because prior to that, we have, I mean, unless you watch that fun trailer, we have no idea that Norman Bates is coming to this story. Right, right. Um, well, and, and I see it on, on see it on some level a little differently over there. I see that it is his um, ultimate condemnation of that Victorian slash Edwardian sensibility. I mean, uh, to, to, to hearken back to that again, Hitchcock is steeped in a society and culture that at the time of his youth and his formative green years, mm-hmm. his salad years, if you will, <laughs> have basically he never um, ate a salad. <laughs> basically instilled um, within him the idea that they still had the motif about women in society mm-hmm. or rather women outside the boundaries of society right. under the angel of the house, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ultimate woman is supposed to be moral and yeah. homebound and family-oriented. Um, so much so that later on, um, Virginia Woolf once famously said, it's time in society we murder the angel in the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in this one, we have when you don't play the angel in the house, you get murdered. Right. Um, setting into how society condemns you, famously being one of the first employment of that great trope of when you are promiscuous, when you're outside the house, when you have independence as a woman, you are in danger by society's ultimate condemnation of death. Which, which I think that some people, I, I, I. I we we talked about in the psycho episode how horror is one of the predominant feminist genres which absolutely. it is absolutely is but i think that there are some especially in the 80s it gets misconstrued and twisted um and 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 calls for it as a moral outrage and rather as like no no this is about strength and it's it's pointing out something that you as society don't want to reckon with which is that this is how you treat women when they act with independence with beauty and with grace and with poise and determination like you you punish them it's That's society's exactly right. fault society punishes them uh, the the woman has done nothing wrong but you, but the the moral outrage mainly comes from i don't want my children watching jason uh, kill somebody in his hockey mask, which that's ridiculous. You should let your children watch it. Um, the, the, by today's standards, it's tame. It's so tame. Um, but you have also the the further delving into the serial killer, and here we deal with the psychosis head on. Um, it the the revelation that it's psychosis doesn't come until the end, until the but end. but the beginnings of it and the way Norman acts, the way he interacts with others, the way he talks about his mother. The way he cleans up after his mother, the way he does these things that we as an audience of the era, and I think even to an extent today, not as much, we're we're of the perception that Norman is uh, a poor, unfortunate, timid soul who's caught up in something he can't escape, his own private trap, if you will. We see that the trap is there, but it's not different by the time we get to the end, Um, and ultimately it breaks the audience's perception of, of of who we consider a killer to be. Uh, it lends a lot of credence or at least justification uh, to the phrase, it's the quiet ones you got to watch out for. <laughs> and not, now whether that's true or not is, is, you know, case by case basis. But the bottom line is, is that it, it really like, and it begins ultimately the idea of the crazed, serial killer and and by this point we are starting to finally understand the term serial killer from a different perspective around the same time or not too long after psycho comes out you have start the zodiac killing start uh within 68 and then you know by the time you move forward you you have son of sam and the hillside strangler and btk and stuff like that and jeffrey dahmer and ted bundy but with psycho uh you're also dealing with the immediacy of Ed Gein. And so you are trying to process, well, where does this crime come from? 
which is something that he he does in Rope, but from a very different angle. And it's definitely from a philosophical and sociopolitical angle. Here, it's straight up in the head. It's, it's an internalization. It's, it's the internalization, right. which is the first time. I think one of the things that is, as it is a horror film, as you pointed out earlier, we nowadays are starting to internalize our stuff more. I think a lot of it begins with this. Because this is one of the first horror films that internalizes it. Um, and it's all through Norman Bates's Norman Bates as a character. It is. It's foundational in that sense. Um, and and I and I I do appreciate that you're referring to it as a more of a psychological horror film. I'm one of the I'm one of those uh, rare minorities that doesn't like to refer to Psycho as the first slasher film. Um, I'll also throw out that you know it's in contention with another great film that came out that year Peeping that was Tom. Powell's Peeping Tom. Yeah, uh, which came out a bit earlier. Which um, you might even be able to argue had more of a ritualization of multiple female victims was the first employment of the final girl trope. I mean, there's a lot of other components there that are yeah. slasher esque. I've always felt that peeping Tom is a little bit more, um, of the mentality of what we consider a slasher film. To exactly. Be. I think psycho, I think psycho gets lumped in with it mainly because it does inspire from a visual standpoint, how something like um, Black Christmas or Halloween gets made. Of course. Which is not unfair. And I would call it oh, a granddaddy not. of a slasher film, but like like any granddad, it's not necessarily tied in uh, not tied in behavior wise. Certainly. Maybe more of a godfather in exactly. that sense, right? Yeah. And, um, but, and this is where I harken back to, you know, I will throw out there, it is kind of like an elevated form with that. I mean, this this is a film that, through its psychological deconstruction of the interior of its. Um, of its antagonist here. I mean, that that's far different than what's going to come out three years later with um, blood feast. Right. I mean, <laughs> no, no one watching blood feast is going to sit there and try to deconstruct. My goodness. Does the upper level of the, um, uh, of the household there in psycho is, is the mother represent the super ego and Norman's on the ground floor. I mean, no one's doing that with blood feast. Right? No, 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 no. It, it is not a higher no. level, no, no. <laughs> absolutely elevated. level. Not, not with that. Uh, I mean, like I, you know, there are times when I wish I could watch the Green Inferno from a different angle, <laughs> and I and I and I sometimes do. But anyway, <laughs> no, you um, as we all do. Yeah, but um, you know, uh, actually, from from a from a serious standpoint, people should rewatch Eli Roth's films from a Hitchcock point of view because you'd be amazed how much he gets correct. Um, but uh, with Psycho, also though, like it is ultimately, it is still like the because it's the beginnings of us being able to dive into this subject more head on. It's clunky. It doesn't address the psychological nature of it necessarily in the most mature sense, but it's more mature than any other film probably would have been if you it's, had given it to anybody else. That's right. It's of its time. Yeah. And, and, you know, even, you know, again, even the small gesture toward the gesture toward the end of having one of the detectives just claim, oh, so he's a transvestite. Yeah. And then having to be corrected. Well, no, it's a bit more than that. He says, ah, uh, not exactly. Moment, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even that small moment yeah. is giving rise to exactly what you're talking about. It's at least it's an effort within its time frame to try to see how we can better deconstruct the criminal mind, right? Where before that in films, it's often thought of just as a moral defect or killer, right? Or a associated somehow with just like a a sexual perversion yeah. rather than a mental defect which is done for the one of the first times here exactly and this film i think from the surface level it pushes the boundaries of what you can see on screen which is an important part of hitchcock's career from our from our angle though if we're talking about the slasher film or the horror film as we've as we saw it through most of the 70s 80s and 90s 
it does give us a place to start telling different stories because now mm-hmm. we have different information on the level of what what will a studio put out, what will be put on a big screen, uh, what is what what will the public take, and then I, you know, some people say it happens too abruptly. I think inch by they inch by inch on this. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre does it, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not as violent as people remember it's it to be. Nowhere it's, near as violent, it, it, dude. Like you could you could put it in black and white and show it to a child and they wouldn't get scared. That, that's yeah, one, well, it may be debatable. That's one where I like to talk about. Everyone can clearly remember seeing a hook protruding, but you never see it. Yep. It's, it's kind of like that throwback to the idea that everyone somehow remembers, uh, mis- uh, what do you call it, um, that the ear was cut off in Reservoir Dogs. When yeah. it wasn't, it was panned away, which, by the way, the great Mockingjay Tarantino ripped off of Marnie, but we'll get into that <laughs> some other time, <laughs> that direct shot. Um, but, yeah, no, you're exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not as violent as people remember. Right, exactly. And, and Psycho definitely falls into that area with the boundary pushing of violence. And he does take something that he, – he, he innovates something, but also he takes something that – if it were in any other person's hands at that time, it may not have been approached with the kid gloves. Mm, a lot mm. of what Psycho's success has to do with is that shower sequence, and that shower sequence is meticulously edited not just by George Tomasini, but also Amal Revel. A lot of what we get, mm. not just from this film, but from the beginning to the end, um, uh, well, maybe at this point, because when we get into the last film, it's not so clear, but Elmer Revel is very, very much a part of how this all works. Um, one could argue that Psycho doesn't work without Elmer Revel. Um, she is she's the reason a lot of the films work, but I think Psycho is the very much the case because Psycho has exactly the potential right. to be a disaster, and it instead becomes a uh, a, 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 a a film that we we talk about constantly to this day, and we. And, our, and the IP is still valuable to people because of work that she does on it. Like she was an uh, Alma Revel was an editor at Gainsborough and British Gamow, and she edited frame by frame. She she got deep into there. We can do it now thanks to technology. I can like, press my arrow buttons and it's all set. She had to do it frame by frame by frame on. Uh, these Steinbeck, like these editing machines that not Steinbeck, but these editing machines of the era that are just like you're looking at them with an eyeglass and all that stuff. It's it's amazing how much she accomplishes, and it's interesting that um, that shower sequence shows nothing, as we talked about with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It shows nothing. But you think you saw something. You really think you saw something. Well, and that's another. You're like, always convinced, no matter what, how many times oh, course, you watch it. Of course, and that's one of the beautiful moments there too. Can we talk also just about early influences? We made the nod already to the fact that they were both steeped in their time, kind of in the in the art of um, expressionism, European expressionism, German expressionism. Um, specifically, but also we forget from an editing component that they were studying the films of the Soviet era. Oh, this yeah. was foundational to them. And so then you have this departure from Rope where we experiment with the long take and we go to a film where our centerpiece is going to be this beautiful homage to Soviet montage. I oh, mean, yeah. It, yeah Eisenstein exactly is all over this, all over especially it. the shower scene. And it's so beautifully employed. Yeah. And, it's, and it's something that we and, – and now it's a foundation for – I wouldn't say all horror films, but like uh, predominant ones that are popular and fun to watch um, uh, employ this fast editing. Mm-hmm. Um, S- Scream, I think, does it the best, to be honest. <laughs> I, think Sc- enough, yeah. I think Scream does it very well. Is, those are very well-edited films that portray the terror while also having the, the 
popcorn flavor to it that sure, you can sure. see. Um, and then also you, I mean, I think Wes Craven did that very well in his, in his career was, you know, knowing when to edit, when to cut. Um, and, but we have psycho coming out in 1960. Uh, it's not received as well, uh, as some other stuff that he had been doing in the golden period from a critical standpoint, from a, from a financial from, standpoint, from uh, a popular uh, standpoint. Uh, uh, buddy made bank and, <laughs> You you get you know you have this between period before and you have this period between Psycho and the final film where he he still has his touch but then at a certain point he loses it or at the very least he loses it with the audience um, you know the birds is another big success Marnie comes out Marnie is not received well and there are various angles and reasons for that um, which deserve its own episode and Absolutely. we will be doing it. Um, Torn Curtain and Topaz are very pedestrian. Uh, I, I like Topaz, it and there's a great Hitchcock sequence in it, but it is admittedly light on his touch. Uh, Torn Curtain is is a mess. Uh, it, it's watchable, but it's a mess. Uh, and uh, and by the time you get to our final film, Frenzy, uh, Hitchcock is very much trying to say, I don't, I don't even know if he knows he's done, but I think he is trying to at the very least get back there, if not make one final statement. And in between that time, he has been meeting with Truffaut. He has been learning from these, uh, these new wave auteurs in Europe, uh, who have really influenced him to push boundaries. There was a film he was going to do before. Before Frenzy comes Are about, we're going to talk about Kaleidoscope. We'll touch a little bit on Kaleidoscope. <laughs> now, I I have only heard bits and portions of this. You may know a lot more. Uh, Kaleidoscope was something he pitched to Truffaut, uh, and from what I've heard of it, it's incredibly violent and incredibly crazy. Um, do you what do you know about Kaleidoscope? Well, and I mean, it would have been um, that that possibly Amer the, like this American new wave masterpiece that just never was. Yeah. Right? And, and in some levels it also, it, I think it also is a perfect bookend to kind of like the re the recent release of Orson Welles. Other side of the wind. Other side great. of the wind. Right. Yeah. So it's these two great auteurs who find themselves consistently battling the rigidity of the studio system mm -hmm. who are watching cinema evolve in front of their eyes. And they're not getting to, and they both are fearing, right? That yeah. Yeah. They're going to, to be left behind. Well, with Hitchcock, he never lost his uh, um, ability to work with the studios. Orson Welles was fucked. He was. Orson, no, Orson was, Welles was straight up top down. fucked by people all over the place, and it sucks. Um, and consequently, The Other Side of the Wind, I think, is great, but it does, like, you, you, you wish that people had just given him money to finish it. Absolutely. Because um, the restoration will ultimately never do the full job. Hitchcock, though, Kaleidoscope as a concept is pitched. It's it's almost it almost gets made at one point and then it doesn't actively goes away. But then Hitchcock gets a project called Frenzy. Um, yes. Frenzy is based off the novel Goodbye Piccadilly. Farewell, Leicester Square. Square. Um, and uh, it's the it's the last time he works in London. So the, our bookend here puts him squarely back where he begins. Uh by the time he comes back to London, the perception of him in London is very different because I think there's a permeating sense of betrayal because even though he had come back to London to do other films uh, in this in-between, he had gone off to America to make movies there That's and so didn't really contribute to the further evolution of British cinema in a way that Powell and Pressburger do and 
other film uh, other filmmakers over there do and so it's sort of bittersweet well and remember too this is where um the american new wave movement and and for your listeners here too i mean Mm -hmm. you know this about me i am an unapologetic um oh my goodness um how should we put this evangelist uh the zeal (laughs) of the converted about the american new wave yeah um time period my Hard assertion, and I'll fight most people on this one, is that the greatest moment in American cinema began with the bloodbath of Bonnie and Clyde in 1968. And I wouldn't disagree with that at all. And ended abruptly with that alien-eating Reese's Pieces in 1982. (laughs) So, you know, that that middle ground there is the greatest cinema. And, you know, you're... Was was the last gasp of breath... Uh, uh, an alien coming out of a guy's stomach in a Arctic outpost because that's that's where the hope lies. <laughs> no, no, that's where it was. That was, and again, yes, you have some of that um, convergence as yeah, the two uh, the exactly two eras, um, that, you know, coincided where it could exist. Fucking beer drinking alien. <laughs> But no, I mean, like how fundamental the American New Wave movement was to all of our great, you know, filmmakers at the time, um, and especially Britain watching what's happening over there. This is a moment where America, rather than Europe, is kind of shining. Yeah. And, and everything is so drastically changing. I mean, if you actually think about it in the American landscape, um, for, for those listening, what we're talking about is that, that wonderful movement where basically the studio system had no idea what to do <laughs> rumbles and yeah it loses its its hold over so many things they watched its core audience whereas like the average the average viewing age uh, uh for cinema back in the late 1950s was still like 55 years old was the average age by the time that television the advent of television came and poached that audience away yeah the the average age of a viewer of cinema in the late 60s dropped to like 32 years old yeah so you saw that demographic of the country shift and go into television they followed television there you had a studio that was didn't have the money didn't have the clout anymore um, found their demographic was gone. Mm-hmm. You had the first generation of what we call the film school generation of American directors who are cutting their teeth on all, as you mentioned earlier, these, all the new wave movements, the, the, the French new wave, the Polish new wave, all these, these beautiful new waves, the Japanese new wave movements. They're getting art house cinema into America for the first time. Yeah. Um, they're these young kids who are innovative. They have no money. Um, so no. they're allowed to be creative, right? We, when you don't have, and we don't have a budget, you leave the studio and you let me try to do that again with that no you're fine no, okay. no, no you're fine so you know when you don't have a budget you're forced to leave the studio and go out into the world you shoot on location um the, the lighting is different because you're using naturalistic lighting right yeah technology has changed you have panaflex cameras that you can now go out and do handheld shots i mean everything yes, has changed te- that, in a moment that's the technology we had we didn't have the other technology at the time <laughs> exactly. so it's like, yeah he, he was one of them guys no, that's exactly right we so, can give him shit but he was an innovator he was um so, so it was radical you know this was a radical moment yeah and what i love about both the idea of kaleidoscope and what he actually does in frenzy which i'm so thankful and happy that you kind of agreed to us to talk about today because I, it's one of my just beloved little Hitchcock films it, that it, doesn't get the love it should. It, no, it's it's interesting because I've been wanting to talk about this film for a while um, on the show. And Frenzy is, I think when it's pitched to you at a young age uh, from a trailer or anything like that, you think of Psycho immediately, which is not unfounded. You know, you see a person killing somebody else, you think, oh, it's, it's like a Psycho movie from Hitchcock again. It's decidedly much more of a different, like, approach to it. I think 
let's go right off the bat. He pushes the visual boundaries to the nth degree. Oh, does he? This is the only time in his filmography that he has pure nudity Full in nudity. it, which is oh, there, yep. and it's and it's done in a very violent and very uh, sad way. Very um, sad. Uh, uh, the, the closest pushing to the boundary of simulation of sex. Yeah, exactly. And violent the, sex. The, at there's that. there's there's full on terrifying rape and murder scenes in this movie and the uh the the balance that he has uh of approaching it and also weaving in his man on the run falsely convicted uh motif is uh i think uh proportionally redirected in a way that audiences weren't expecting um if you look at the con- construction of frenzy it almost seems to upend a lot of stuff he established while still standing on the same ground. And while still revisiting exactly. moments of it in there. And Just... pointing it out. That's right. And he points it out in various interesting ways. The The story of Frenzy ultimately comes down to a drunk former RAF uh, uh, commander uh, is fired from his job. And is trying to, you know, find make a like trying to find some money. Um, his friend that he uh, that he gets a little bit of assistance from is a sexual deviant who uh, murders his uh, who murders uh, the RAF squadron leader's ex-wife, uh, and the squadron leader is framed for the murder. Essentially, um, it's very much it's almost like a moment by moment portrayal of how these two characters come to their ultimate fates um with the third edition being the detective on the case <laughs> yes, yes um which i i love his moments um i Chief Oxford. I, I i think alec mccohen is one of those <laughs> actors who's very good at doing comedy and drama within the same moment and Thankfully, Hitchcock has his food motif throughout the film, which is very important. <laughs> and, and you know, we, we laugh about it, but those scenes with him and his wife at the dinner table are incredibly informative on how both Hitchcock and an audience are processing the violence they've just seen, the attributes of a killer that they are witnessing, and the way we ultimately need to approach uh the subject going forward it's it becomes the full clinical um and and uh contemplative and intelligent uh discussion of it um at the same time it i think ultimately we were talking about at the lodger how society is portrayed uh and how it goes further in rope and psycho i think the peak of it is here because this film is very much trying to reckon with current criminal culture cr- current societal points of view on how a criminal is labeled and uh treated uh it deals a lot with how london functions as a society uh and what people perceive as its stock and trade one of the best lines in the movie in my opinion is like if, if in a way i wish he wouldn't be caught because it really helps the tourist attraction <laughs> it's so and true. it's it's so morbid but it is so on the money in terms of like a perception if it, even if it's not factual it's a perception that we have right. like well we, yeah but but on some level there there is the factual in i mean you're you're dead on with you know of Hitchcock's the the full employment here of Hitchcock's favorite triptych of of ideas, which is you know sex, death, and food. They're on full display here, um, and I'll give you exactly what you just said too. Possibly the best use 
of a cooked piece of meat on a plate yeah. to have imbued meaning since Polanski's repulsion. Yeah. I mean, just, just absolute brilliance here. And yes, even though this is based off of the 66 novel by Laburn, which is fictionalized, it does have its case in the Reg Christie case, mm-hmm. um, which is a famous series of murders that took place in, in England, in that same region, which is the um, oh, Covent Garden region, which you see referenced in the film, yeah. where there was a, a tradesman, a grocer, mm-hmm. uh, just like dad, um, in a certain region, in the same place where his father used to hold a shop. Yeah. But it was based off of a real-life case of a man who uh, strangled, raped, and murdered um, eight different victims in that time and had a neighbor who actually was hung for his crimes yeah. um, false, through false imprisonment and actually led to the reform of the death penalty system in, in London, and, or in England, rather. So, And what's interesting is that while this film is also expanding and evolving its ideas about uh, how we perceive these crimes, it's also a very interesting commentary about how we detect the crimes. Uh, I I fully believe, after rewatching it last night, that the film... The film's ultimate like statement from a Hitchcock point of view, other than what we're just discussing, is uh, is a is, is almost a meta commentary on how uh, characters in his films should no longer suffer the fate that they've been suffering for twenty to thirty years, mm. because uh, Blaney as a character is rung through a ringer. But I don't think we get as much moments with as many moments with him as we say deal with a Cary Grant in North by Northwest. Uh, weird comparison, but but no, but fair. Uh, yeah, Grant is on the run. We are seeing his struggles and tribes and trials and tribulations. But we have a light area fair about it. Blaney's put through hell, and the camera cuts away from him way more than you'd expect. And within that, the point of view of the detective is the most interesting because. He is so sure for the majority of this film that Blaney is guilty that when he flips, it's almost a way of finally making the frustrating characters in a Hitchcock movie self-aware. Oh God, they are so they are suddenly aware. Oh my gosh, we're detecting wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we police bad. <laughs> well, that, that, that great condemnation again of how society views that crime and class. Yeah. must be related somehow, right? Which makes it the perfect bookend of The Lodger as the whole case of Jack the Ripper was distorted by the idea that a proper British gentleman could never be guilty of such crimes. Exactly. And one of the best elements of this is how they assume he's guilty because of him being a divorcee, uh, the, the, the ideas of love and marriage and how they're dissected and transformed throughout that film. When it ultimately comes down to is a psychosis uh, from a from a lone individual who has a different peculiarities. Now, as I've said before, the mental, or the, the the clinical and psychological breakdown in a Hitchcock movie is not even close to medically accurate, but it has its roots in something real, and that's where the the legitimacy comes through. The violence on screen in Frenzy is still disturbing. Watching it last night, it was still disturbing. It's exactly it's, it's exactly what it needs to be. Through a modern lens and a modern context, it it tends to uh I think it I think it I think people watching it today will be uh conflicted on how they feel about it. I think ultimately when you watch the film, you do have to watch it from a couple different angles. Um this is a serious statement, but it's almost kind of how I look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's recent release where you are having to ultimately, in addition to the story elements, you are looking at a filmmaker who's out the door. And 
that in the in the case of Frenzy, I think ultimately what you're watching is Hitchcock, whether he's aware of it or not, making a final statement because fi- Family Plot is much more of a, a a a fun affair. It's not really heavy. I think it's cheeky. I think it's an adorable film, but Frenzy is a statement. It is, and 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 it's a full circle statement. If that, remember we we're talking about. Um, all of the great uh, French auteurs and critics yeah. who basically plucked um, Hitchcock initially out of what American, the American critical, critical um, um, depositing into the bin of being a trash genre director. It was yeah. the French new wave critics and filmmakers who was like, you have a genius on your hands yeah. and look what he's doing and brought him into acclaim. And now you have him. He returns to Cannes in 1972 yeah. with this film. Truffaut is back by his side pointing yeah. out that this is a last great masterpiece. And it's really kind of sad in a way too. And this is where the element with um, Kaleidoscope comes to mind because I think I, I remember um, when you read the great Hitchcock Truffaut, you know, transcripts, one of the things that you really catches as this beautiful moment is when Hitchcock kind of plaintively tells Truffaut, I wish sometimes I had your freedom, mm-hmm. right? I wish sometimes I had the freedom to do whatever I want, like the new wave artist, right? And now he's in a moment where it's come to America right now. All his contemporary directors in America have yeah. that freedom for the first time. And, and he's able to grasp it, grasp into it in a way that unfortunately Orson Welles was not able to primarily because no matter how much you evolve in Hollywood, they're still old they're structures, old structures, grudges. That's right. Um, you know, opinions about wells of uh, fucking wells was robbed um absolutely I, I agree and you know like hitchcock though he does he makes frenzy but he's also getting older he's had a pacemaker at this point yeah, yeah. alma's having strokes um and i think at a certain point with family plot uh everybody involved knows it's the end it's the end um and even hitchcock's aware of it so frenzy within a respect is like Family plot should never be discredited. I think it is a beautiful, fun affair that is that is a Hitchcock movie. But Frenzy is the final time we see the thing we talk about the most. That's right. That's and, ultimately what it is. And a master and a masterpiece. But again, being experimental, having the courage to start saying, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna take some crazy backward handheld long take. Out, out, of, out of a room, right? And I'm going to... I'm gonna, That's my favorite shot. Right? Isn't that movie. an amazing shot in this my, film? My favorite shot in the movie has nothing to do with anything he's wanting me to be f- amazed with. <laughs> I'm with it's you. something that he's always done. It's... But he's so good at approaching it from a modern lens. Exactly, right? Yeah, he'll, he'll, he employs it like he's a new way, an American new way filmmaker, and he's just audacious about it, and he pulls that out. And then he also is completely unafraid within a couple sequences later to throw back an old-fashioned montage jarring sequence that just comes in and still has the ability to shock you. What I love about this film uh, is that, even again, watching it right now, revisiting it again last night, yeah. I found myself still shocked by some moments uh, of violence, and but of also the filmmaking I'll tell in, you, the, in the best ways. I'll tell you, like um, the scene with Blaney's ex-wife is still disturbing. However, uh, Rusk... Digging the through the potatoes the to potatoes find Babs's body, and and uh, him having to break the rigor mortis fingers, it's not shocking or scary, 
but it is the last time I think we really see the purest and most correct form of Hitchcock's humor that you'd see on the television show and in his movies. But also, but I'm, I'm speaking mainly from the television show because this is something that you wish you had seen on the television show. <laughs> right. It's so weird right, right. because, like, the television show, you, unfortunately, you can't do all the things you want to do. It's FCC standards. I totally get that. But – this is this is a moment where if Hitchcock were, just, were still doing the television show, you might be able to get away with doing it. Uh, and in the cracks of the bones, Hitchcock is very good at using sound absolutely only when he needs to. And in this particular moment, I think it's one of the strongest moments of it. Consequently, he also knows when to turn the sound completely off. That's and right. it seems audacious. Right. And it's funny, it seems audacious from a new wave perspective, and it totally is. Um, and, and Bogdanovich uh, even said in the featurette on um, on the Blu-ray that it's a brave, risky, bold move. Uh, with all due respect to Bogdanovich um, and his wonderful ascots, I <laughs> I feel that this is Top no. Notch, yeah, I know. Yeah, oh, dude, he's he's he he could put Fred from Scooby Doo to shame. Um, but uh, he he does this multiple times throughout his career. But I think that it's never been as abrupt. So I think what the exactly. difference is that, that it's, that's it's no different from a uh, uh, band of outsiders where they turn off the sound. Uh, it's it's uh, very much I'm going to make you aware of it. It's going to throw you off a bit. It's a bit of fourth wall breaking, but it's also contained within the elements of the story. Um, but he also does the same tricks he's done in the past where sound is only used when it's necessary. Right, right. And, and And then pure cinema is reached like. Even when you don't have the line, you're my type of gal, Babs, as you're doing that pullout, you turn the sound off on this film. For the most part, it works. I think there's only a few sequences where you absolutely need that, the the uh, the, the dialogue, which right, right. I think the beginning of the film needs it with um, Blaney and his boss at the bar. And I think you do need it from the dinner sequences, only from the sense of I want those conversations going on in my head. <laughs> Um, but so this is ultimately the end of our experience with Hitchcock through this motif of lowbrow genre comments on society, uh, the serial killer motif. Today we have uh, we have shows like Mindhunter, uh, which are which are great at approaching the same subjects from an even more sophisticated lens. Um, I, I actually think that the natural successor to uh, at the very least, the lodger uh, is Zodiac mm. because mm. of how it deals directly with a recipient of the rage and not the person who's instigating the rage um, or or a bystander, I guess you right, call it. Right, right. Um, Zodiac is very much dealing with a person who is so far off to the sidelines compared to the actual people involved in the case. Um, and uh, And also Fincher, an intelligent filmmaker, knows how to – He's not using strictly Hitchcockian techniques, but he has them there. He employs them, right? Yeah. He and De Palma basically pick up this dismantle <laughs> and start fucking running. No, De Palma right? dresses himself with it <laughs> on a nightly basis. De Palma, ladies and gentlemen. It's it's interesting though how like, you know, we talk about the filmmakers that take from him, like John Carpenter and whatnot. Uh it's surprising that, you know, 
I've always felt like no one's made a truly Hitchcockian film beyond it outside of High Anxiety, and that's only because I think High Anxiety knows how to tell an actual Hitchcock story. It's the it's just directed by someone different. Yeah, exactly. It's Mel, well, if you look at the framing of that film, there will be. I, I already planned that there is going to be an episode on High Anxiety. <laughs> it's dedicated solely to High Anxiety and breaking it down frame by frame. Um, uh, and I already have the guest for it. It's awesome. It's gonna be awesome. But. Uh, but no one's been able to fully capture the way he presents the information because the ideas have evolved. Uh, but the idea of let's take a lowbrow genre and raise it up is supremely relevant today. And it's the backbone of any original idea happening in Hollywood right now from a theatrical standpoint. Um, you know, we, we kid and we have our opinions about Tarantino, but the bottom line is, is that he is taking these rather lowbrow things and turning them into an, into a high art. Um, you could argue Edgar Wright does the same thing too, but I, it all deals with our perception of genre. Like, how do you perceive genre? And I think right. over the course of t- today, we've discussed how subjugating an opinion on a genre is uh, a tricky area that, you know, can have you trip and fall around in. Um, if you just call it what it is or like aren't ashamed of a label, then you ultimately are able to embrace it on many levels and not just a restricted one. Like a lot of the films we've talked about, if not all of them are horror films and they are horror films through and through. They may be of different eras. They may be of different genres, but they're horror films. And and that's what excites me so much about this legacy with Hitchcock and that elevation of what the lowbrow, right, to the exploitative genre, is that we are now just seeing this beautiful moment in the American horror movement yet again. Yeah. Where we are, we, we have auteurs who are coming out, who all, by the way, I mean, we talk about the 30-year nostalgic cycle, right? Yeah. What, what you see 30 years ago, what, what influences you as a child, 30 years later, you're either in the position to make art that reflects it yeah. or to be demanding art that gives you the nostalgic bump, the key bump that you need to, to manifest your way in the world again. And so you now have these, this great generation of directors right now within the horror genre who are revisiting that and revisiting the auteurs of that time period, these European auteurs again being like, you know what I mean? Like, hell, you had that one year where you had basically, um, oh, Aster and, um, oh, oh my goodness, um, Schultz, Aster, and... I'm trying to think of the other director here, but oh, um, Aronofsky, who uh-huh. basically all just did their own version of Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Within like a two year period, <laughs> this entire generation of new horror filmmakers yeah. were like, let's just recycle Polanski because it worked then yeah. and it should work now. So I'm loving that we're in that moment again where we can revisit that. And I think we're still in that, we're, we're still, we're, we're in the cyclical era in the respect of like the 80s as, as, um, as innovative as it is in certain senses. The 80s, I think, is totally dominated by. Um, commercial fare. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Some good, some bad. You know, some masterpieces. But we're nearing a point right now, especially with the emergence of people like uh, Jordan Peele and yes. Ari Aster, and you know, even even Greta Gerwig and um, uh, 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 Jennifer Kent, um, who hmm, did right. Babadook. Um, and now you, the Nightingale. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, which I need to see. The you you are you are seeing people, I think, emerge similarly the way they did from the '90s, where I, uh, um, uh, individual voices are coming back to the fold. Uh, I think we're going to have a couple more years of predominant IP before we really see any kind of shift, if at all. Because again, 
the dynamics of the business are changing and that's sure. that's ultimately what's at hand. Yeah. It's not even the content anymore because you can get the content wherever. It's it's about how the business itself is going to change. But from a historical moment, in American history at least, yeah. it, it's a watershed, right? Because oh, yeah. you know, you're talking about like one of the only nations on earth that has never been able to be reflective from our from right from from well uh, that sounds terrible no, let me no, before i'm taken out of context yeah, no. what i mean is more of just it, it can never be um introspective to its own demons like oh, part yeah. of our national construct is not to be right that, yeah. so and i think that's what's always made us kind of veer down a different uh, road from the the european horror filmmakers that are looking at the internalization look at the horrors of and anxieties about ourselves society our legacy our collective guilt yeah and america is basically who we are our branding is to never go that route and look at it we get we we get distracted when it's convenient exactly yeah and yeah. that's that's that like, we can't sit down for too long and i think that at the end of the day we're if, if we're to take anything from Hitchcock in terms of today, I think the best example that you can see of it is Jordan Peele. Um, I think Peele, you know, some would argue Ari Aster, and I don't disagree with that, but I think that Aster is also drawing from very different uh, corners of cinema. I agree. Um, he's, I, I think he's more of a Polanski. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I, I agree. He very much has the ideas of repulsion and Rosemary's Baby stuck in his head. I think Peele... While he gravitates towards some of those similar themes, Peel understands because of his background in comedy how to appeal to the audience, and he knows how to write for the audience. Us is one of the best films I've seen this year solely because it is able to address an issue from a broad perspective. It's interesting how much Us is a Hitchcock movie in, in supreme disguise because you wouldn't think of it right away, but there are, there are vague... There are vague descriptions of things in Hitchcock films throughout, like, you know, government secrets. I don't know. That's what's after you, Cary Grant. (laughs) That same vagary works supremely well in us, but we are so sophisticated that I think critics and sometimes fans get muddled in uh, why there's not enough detail or, like, thorough explanation of things. And uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion of the past couple of months that, I think we're supremely devoid of being able to accept things, not blindly, but just like you've got to run with something, like and and be more concerned with the overall feeling than the tiny, the, the supremely tiny details. Like Hitchcock wants you to wants your wants those details in his film so that the film breathes on a broad spectrum. He doesn't try to do it so that you notice them each time. Yeah. Um, and we are a dissective culture, especially with the internet. So I think that there's a definite uh, approach to cinema and how we read it that becomes too intricate at times. Whereas sometimes you need to sit back like the twist in us, much like the twist in uh, a psycho and whatnot is not necessarily the most important thing in the film, but it, but it, but it breathes a new way of reading the story that still works as a through line. And I'm learning recently that the sixth sense does operate that way. Absolutely. It it's, it, yeah. it's, it's easy to throw that film under a bus, Oh no! but I think that th- rewatching that film and rediscovering it, it is definitely a film that works, even though, you know, the twist, I think it doesn't work as well as other films, but it does it really well. Cause it has an emotional core to it too. And that broad emotional sense is what appeals to you. And that's what Hitchcock did. See, Hitchcock appealed on a broad emotional sense. Cause he knew the things to tap into. 
again, the eternal populace. And I'm so glad you just said that about Jordan Peele. Um, that was going to be my, my surprise shocker. I was going <laughs> to drop on you too. I love that. Um, two minds think alike yeah. in this way. I couldn't agree with you more. Also Keanu should have won a best screenplay Oscar <laughs> in 2016. I will never drop that. <laughs> but no, I, that, that, it's, it's absolutely fundamentally correct over there. Um, that, and that, and both of these directors now are that perfect bridge for blending once again, high contextual intellectual art with grand themes and metaphors right. through a genre that can also just be enjoyed and appreciated through its own reactive low sensibilities as well. I'm, I was astonished like the audience divided when the lights came up on us. How if you, you can just read this purely as a horror film and it is masterfully done as a horror film. If you go back and look at its entire ideas with current geopolitics and class inequality and 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 everything that's happening right now too it is an entirely different film and i would argue too just like you that very few people have been able to do that successfully and still play through popular culture the way they have successfully like peel has as a modern successor to hitchcock exactly and he's you know it's a rorschach of a of a movie us is and hitchcock has done similar work within that respect to uh, like I think it's mainly just how the audience reacts, not necessarily from the th themes, but just the reactions and stuff. Sty Psycho was uh, a, a very divisive film in its time. Um, I think The Birds has a similar reaction. I think The Birds really took a while to get the respectable following that it has today. Even Vertigo. It, yeah, Vertigo is the, the clear-cut yeah, example yeah. of that. And I'd argue that uh, I think it still needs to have a little more ascension, but The Trouble with Harry has a lot of that. Good call. Trouble with Harry is a wonderful film that doesn't get talked about I, for obvious reasons, but it's a really good film. Um, and Rope Rope definitely has been through that. Rigor. I'm waiting for that big critical reevaluation. Rope, I think Rope, I think needs to be looked at again, especially when we have people like Inuyatu really pushing the one take motif and the VR experience. Uh, you know, there's there there's that element. And, and if we go all the way back to the London uh, to the story of the London Fog that started this whole conversation. There is a our understanding and our perception of the lurid and the CD is much more sophisticated thanks to people like Hitchcock because if we don't have those bridges in the pop culture beyond pop culture we can't talk about it further That's right. we have to have a basis point of discussion in order to have those discussions that then move into the important realms of science politics technology medicine uh things that are you know things that are done by people that are much more important than you and i sitting down talking about moving pictures like <laughs> like it's it's almost like denigrating to say to the art of cinema but it's just like yeah doctors are more important <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> no but but you're exactly right too it's also hitchcock i mean look at this moment we're in it's also you know from beyond the grave Hitch can um, snarkily <laughs> poke us with his stick that he tried to show us early on when he first began flashing the golden curls at us. I mean, like right now, we're here um, in, in, doing this podcast, uh, and there's no place on earth I'd rather be than with you here right now discussing this film. But the modern state of the podcast right now, I think I saw that the eight of the of the top ten most successful genres of uh, the new podcasts that are out are all within the true crime sensationalist yeah. revisitation of the um, cautionary crime tale right, on which, modern society. Which is which which at times to me personally feels alarming, but it should. It's also very positive because it is you know it's a subject that's you know it has a reason to be there because it's how we understand and break down our views on society, our different moral codes. And, um, and I actually would like further that, like, thanks to, you know, 
podcast being able to share older radio, we're also seeing a rebirth of how to dramatize audibly, mm-hmm. which is important to me. But I think, and I think ultimately with with Hitch's ultimate influence on this is that he has kept a conversation alive, exactly, and he has further elevated how we process that information. Um, thank you very much, Jack, for sitting oh down and goodness. chatting. Thank with you me for having this. me. And I, I need to have you back at the very least one more time, if not more, for uh, before we end this whole mini series, and then I will definitely have you on for when I do. Um, my series on John Houston, which is this fucker wants to kill an elephant. <laughs> I will um, come back at any time and I'll be working on my Jimmy Stewart. There we go. Perfect. Um, really quickly. Do you want to plug anything before you uh, leave our good graces? Well, I mean, I think I'm just going to, um, I would like to just, again, thank your, your listening audience for, for <laughs> enduring me, uh, bloviating here for a while. And, um, just uh, mention again, um, Crested Butte Film Festival is coming up. It's always the last weekend in September, and mm-hmm. I would urge people to um, go check that out or come and visit it. It's a marvelous thing, and um, I will try to emulate your amazing podcast <laughs> with uh, the history of you in five films to be looking forward soon. Awesome. I cannot wait, by the way. I cannot wait to listen. It's going to rock. Um, that's been it for the Shamley Silhouette this week. Um, we've talked about The Lodger, Rope, Psycho, Frenzy. These are all films you can check out on Blu-ray. They're all available in glorious HD formats. Please find them that way. Don't buy them bootleg, guys. That's ridiculous. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Instagram at, at RealNerdZach. Uh, you can check out um, all the articles and the episodes of The Shamley Silhouette on RealNerdsPodcast.com uh, and the Real Nerds Podcast feed on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, uh, all the good places you can get your podcasts, uh, you know, and you can listen to other things there too. I'm sure there's plenty of shows available for y'all to listen to. Uh, next time, I don't know what we'll be talking about because this will be the end of all the things I've been pre-recording in advance. So it's a mystery. So stay tuned because we've got more hitch goodness coming your way. Uh, we don't see an end in sight as of now, but I think we'll have to at some point because this, this, this subject can only go on for so long. I don't guys. want the experiment. Yeah, no, exactly. No, yeah, I, no, I want 80 episodes. <laughs> I want 80 episodes for the 80 minutes that rope made me sit through. <laughs> Cause I'm going to torch people the way that droll fat British man did. <laughs> um, but anyway, this has been the Shamley silhouette until next time. Good night. <laughs>